When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venice. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully. Great to be back working with you. Well, what are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. Hello, it is Tom on behalf of me and Joe. A big classic episode of the show to introduce you to today. This is about historians. It's also about the superb Dan Snow, who knows pretty much everything about everything. One of our all-time favourites is it covers Roman empires, it covers kings with unpronounceable names, it covers Tutankhamun's underpants, and of course, Henry VIII. Enjoy! Our guest today is a historian, and his name is Dan Snow. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Right, so first of all, you've got a really nice voice. I think you've got a lovely voice, but you, you know you've got a. You, I'm working on my voice. It's a little bit too high. I want to have a bit, de- you know, a bit more depth to it. Well, it's your voice. You can do whatever you want with your voice. You can project it. You can make it really quiet, or you can make it posher. Or more come and Jarmaine, mate, eighteen. Or you fuck off, fucking mug. Sorry, too far. I got carried away into act. Tom, what about your voice? Because your kids. They're very northern, but you're not northern in the slightest. Yeah, so we moved up to the North Joe when Arthur was about six months old and he's possibly bilingual because he speaks to me like a southern and he speaks to his mum like a northern. No, that's brilliant. And words that he uses with his scouse granddad come out as scouse, so he will talk about cows. Cows? Cows. Cars? Yeah, cars. It's cars. I speak scouse, Joe. I speak scouse, Joe. Don't worry about it. Joe, would you swap for Dan's voice if you got the chance? If there was a, a feasible way of you two swapping voice, would you take that? 100%. And I think it is doable because I once saw Face Off. Of course. And they change faces and voices. And so my my view is if it's happened in a film, whenever my, my wife turns around to me and goes, well, that's not true, it's just in a film. I went, yeah, but if someone's thought of it for a film, it means it's definitely happened in the world. <laughs> and she's like... That's a really weird way to look at things, because just look at the human centipede. I was going to use that example, Joe, but I was thinking also of the destruction of Alderaan by the Death Star. As far as I'm aware, there's been no massive Uh, starships blowing up planets. uh, But you have got as much proof to prove against me as I have to prove against you. Oh, here we go. I like, okay, here we go. (laughs) It might have done. It might have done. You're right. In a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. If a tree falls in the Amazon, does that mean you can't hear it? Sort of, Joe. You've mangled that slightly, but yeah, I know, I know the point you were trying to make. <laughs> it feels like we've inadvertently stumbled here, Dan, into, into one of the central controversies of history. Like, it could be possible that Alderaan has been blown up by the Death Star, but because there's no Alderanians around 
to provide testimony to me because they were blown up. And then ultimately, the emperor and his cohorts were beaten by the rebels. Maybe they didn't get the chance to write that history either. You know what? That's a really good point. And that's why we used to talk about, but historians don't anymore. They talk about the Dark Ages after the Romans left Britain. And things got a little dark. To be honest, I, I'm not, I don't mind that expression because it was a bit dark. There was a lot of pandemic disease, a lot of climate change, a lot of people getting killed, complete breakdown of society. But no one wrote any of it down. So basically, we don't know a huge amount about what happened. So the big lesson from history, as, as all these Instagrammers today know, post it or it didn't happen. Picture or it didn't happen. Like, right? It says, if it's not on YouTube or it's not on Instagram, I don't care if you saw a great sunset and you had a beer and you're with all your hot mates. <laughs> it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So that is the essential lesson from history. Which means Joe is right, you know, maybe, maybe once a planet was destroyed by a, by a starship. But if there's no chroniclers around, that's why you've always got to be careful your spin doctors. Always keep your chronicler handy. Keep them close. I have no fucking idea how you managed to segue from the bollocks that we were talking at the start <laughs> to actually getting around to the first question of what in the heck does a... Heck, who the fuck says heck? I can imagine that playing the All Blacks at a particularly gritty moment in some like rolling morning, you're like, oh, heck. Heck. <laughs> oh, heck. I find doing a Kiwi accent really difficult, actually. The, the Australian one's really easy because it's like, harsh, mate, and you just extend everything. Mate, you just, yeah, mate. Eh. And more often than not, if you drop a certain C word on the end of things, you're automatically Australian because that's what they do. Whereas the Kiwi seem to, it's the same, but not, it's still, oh mate, you want fish? You want some fish? Fish and chips? You want some uh, fish and chips? You, Joe, you have to shorten everything up a little bit, like like your lip stand move, like your ventriloquist dummy, and then it comes out a bit more clipped, like a Kiwi. There's a, there's a, you're hovering towards a South African there, buddy, but I know you're in the right, you're in the right bullseye. It slips that way. It does mate, slip that way, Dad. Mate, I, yeah. eat, I eat plankton. I eat plankton. You're right. It's all, yeah. Anyway, anyway, back to the point. Dan, what do you do apart from all your podcasts and all your TV programs that I've seen? What is the job of a historian? Um, I have written, I have written proper history books in the past. And what you do is you go and sit in a library and you look at all the sources and you try and work out what the hell happened uh, to a lot of people who've been dead for a long time. And so some people find that, like I can see from your face, Joe, you're finding, you think, well, is that a good way to spend your time? But the answer is it is, it's quite important. But, but now what I do is I basically talk to the world's best historians. I've worked, I've, sh I've basically got a life hack, which is I get all the world's best historians on my podcast. I just ask them what happened. And then I pretend that that I know all the answers, um, having asked them. But that's, so yeah, that's what historians do. They work out how we got to where we are today. What on earth has happened that landed us up in this shit show today? <laughs> Why are you sitting in the back of your car in the rain with Odie talking nonsense to these three other blokes? Like, what is, why, why? And the answer lies in the past. Somebody came up to you at some stage with a brilliant bloody idea of starting a podcast. And you very foolishly said yes. I actually think that I, I disagree with that, which is important because there are so many disagreements on historical events I disagree. The reason I'm sat in my van in the rain in a hoodie talking to three somewhat intelligent uh, life forms is because someone in Wuhan in a uh, lab or a wet market, I can't make up my mind which one it is yet because of all the stories that are being told, made up a virus and now we're in lockdown 10 or something, whatever it is. And that's my version of history of what, how I got here. But your version was different. And Tom... I'm guessing yours is probably going to be different as well. I feel I have to represent Joe here, who has uh, an instinctive mistrust of most people. What if those sources are incorrect 
Or what if those sources are based on a partial reading of something that really went on? So if we were going to, like someone listening to this this shambles of a podcast were to write an account of it, then it might be totally different to the account that another listener writes. So if you're sitting down in the library in 100 years' time and for some ridiculous reason have decided to write a history of, of shambolic podcasts, how do you know that the source is true? You don't. That's what's joyful. And that's why Joe is absolutely right to be sceptical. What history should teach you is not to believe any old bullshit you're told. My crazy Brexit uncle on Facebook has got this chat about it being created in a lab in Wuhan. Where's your evidence, crazy Facebook Brexit uncle? Where is it? I, I need it. That's what that's. History is basically, history is strengthening for your critical facilities of your mind, right? So you go, yeah, I'm not a mug. You've got to tell me what is the reason that you want to enact this policy, do this thing, make that decision, right? And and I don't believe anything I'm being told because you're completely right. We've got no idea what was going through Julius Caesar's head. We've got one source. Actually, Julius Caesar wrote about himself. So a lot of it basically comes from Julius Caesar's own autobiography. I mean, how can we believe that? And it's 2,000 years ago. So that's what historians do. They try and find whatever. You're always looking for evidence. You're always, oh, look, there's a little source here. No one's ever noticed before. There's a little mention of Julius Caesar in that source. That's quite important. That's good. That shows that he was in that place at that time he says he was. You're always, always, always trying to piece together what the hell has gone on. And it's always going to be a completely incomplete picture. I don't really know how I got to where I am today. And I was there for most of it. So how am I supposed to know what happened 500 years ago? Julius Caesar, Julius. Julius, yeah. Caesarean section. Is that where that comes from? Yes. First baby to survive a Caesarean section, as we understand it. Yeah, named after him. Yeah, yeah. Really? How on earth have they performed a Caesarean section 2,000 years ago? Well, I can tell you, mate, it would have been uncomfortable, wouldn't it? I mean, it's. I I imagine there were a lot of... um, Big knives. I mean, I don't, it's Brad. How do you think? It's not good, man. There's no, like, there wasn't any special, t- they weren't all like using, you know, like suckling on a bit of honeysuckle and then just doing it all by, you know, homeopathy. It was bad. It was mechanical. I'm so glad that that's actually true because I've been telling my wife that that's what a C section's named after. And she's like, you're full of shit. And I went, well, now I've got a source to you back me source, up. Mate. You got a source. But hopefully, if she's a historian, she'll say, where's the evidence, mate? Where's the evidence? The Latin word, I think, for caesarean, it comes from the word to cut open as well. So it could just be that it's, you know, to cut open. But the the word on the street is, it's, that is, Caesar was the first child born from a caesarean. Can I ask you about some other misconceptions in history, Dan? So uh, there's two in particular. The first one is that Harold at the Battle of Hastings dies because he gets an arrow through his eye. Yeah. Is there something about on the bio tapestry where the words go round the top, where weirdly the words like double up over a certain section and people now think that Harold just died in the battle. It wasn't an arrow through the through the eye which did it. It's very like that there is a sense that during some cleaning process or some something going on the Victorians, they might have like that the words might not refer to the guy with the actual arrow in the eye. There was a story well known about at the time that someone got shot by an arrow in the eye in the Bible. And he was an oath breaker. So that was what you did to oath breakers. You got shot in the eye. So that it would be a kind of allegory. So look, here, everyone is a story you've all heard of. The guy, get, Harold got shot in the eye because he broke his oath, right? Because he took the crown. What's more likely is there's another source about the battle, which is more reliable, but not a pictorial and a written source that says Harold was actually killed by a death squad of Roman knights led by William the Conqueror himself, which may not be true. But they, And they look for him because you're standing underneath your banner. And those medieval battles are all about decapitation. You just go for the leader. So like Henry IV, the Battle of Shrewsbury. He had. A, he was a good one. Henry the Fourth had a load of people dressed up like him at the Battle of Shrewsbury, and one or two of them actually got killed. So they're like, "Hey, we got the king!" Oh god, very smart. Yeah, wow. very smart. Wow. Yeah. So, so, but it was all about find the leader and get them, get kill them, and then we're done. 
So Harold, so William charged into the line in the afternoon of Hastings and and cut Harold to pieces. That like a, a special elite death squad. That I think is what historians now think actually happened, rather than the old bear tubstree arrow in the eye. But I mean, that is a, just a can of heart. That's a small hill that I'm not ready to die on, buddy. Every battle there always is, and every movie that I watch, basically, that's my knowledge of history. Like you've just described, Dan, is if you kill the leader, then it just oh well, he's dead, so we'll just all go home. We'll all we'll just that's it now, thingy. And I'm like, well, no, hang on a minute. So that, does that mean you lot on this in the blue corner, being led by Captain Blue, don't actually believe in Captain Blue's ideologies, and that as soon as he's dead, you just go, oh fuck it. I just think it's cowardly. They should have just carried on fighting until there's majority rule rather than just the leader's dead. <laughs> Well, that's what makes you an international rugby player, whereas I think, you know, I'd be very happy to run away as soon as the, some <laughs> twat who told me to get pick up a sword and march off because his cousin had nicked his throne. I'd be like, all right, mate, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, until you're dead, I'll pretend to fight, but then the minute you're gone, I'm going home. So, uh, yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? I think that, uh, that there's another, you raise a really important point there, which is wars seems to have changed as people have developed a kind of consciousness, like a national consciousness. So in a citizen army where people are like voters and they're well-informed, they're educated, they're like, no, this is our fight, man. We're into it. Like, we're going to beat the Nazis. We're going to fight them all. In a war where you're just basically an illiterate peasant and someone marches to your village and says, you're coming with me, mate. And you're like, listen, pal, all right, but I mean, I'm not into your, I'm not like super excited by the Plantagenet claim for the throne here. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, but, but in a war where it's like, this is about the unification, like the French, the Germany's invading France in like the 1870s and the French national anthem and arise, citoyen, blah, blah, blah. So war does kind of change and people get a bit more, basically kind of radicalised, they buy into it a bit more. So that's a long answer. But the, but there was, in the Anglo-Saxon period, Joe, you'll be glad to hear that there was a group of housecarls who were the household warriors, elite warriors of Harold and his, his like senior commanders. And they said, we don't leave the battlefield if the king doesn't. And so they stood and they fought to the last man and they were cut down. That was their, that was their rule. They, there was no honour if they left what, the battlefield. What were they called? The housecarls. Oh, the housecarls. I want to be a housecarl. Yeah, you do, man. Yeah, I love the way that you casually just described, I know it was in passing, Dan, but... You went, oh, I wanted to nick my cousin's crown and my sister and all that lot. Basically, a lot of history and all, a lot of wars and, and feuds are just family falling out, aren't they? Why is there so much fucking incest in <laughs> historical stories? The more digging I've done, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And basically, well, you break it down. It's like, he doesn't like him. She doesn't like her. He doesn't like her, and I'm just going to chop off people's heads for fun. Yeah, I think I think that it is true that in like certainly if you look at the medieval period, a lot of it is just yeah, family. So a terrible civil war in England, known as the Anarchy. I mean, that's a good name for a war. It was given a few years, a few centuries later, but the anarchies between King Stephen and his cousin Matilda, that, that was just pure and simple, about which of those two cousins would wear the throne. The War of the Roses, straightforward uh, cousins fighting over the throne. And the, uh, So that wasn't, that wasn't... Yeah, no, amazingly, it wasn't just about floristry. Well, uh, that's, 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 that's shit though, isn't it? Because that, that's like when they advertise something and it's fraud. What is it? Tom, help me out here, please. Fraudulent advertising? <laughs> Fraud <laughs> adverts? <laughs> you know, when they say, oh, this is the best cup of coffee in the world, and it's like, well, no, it's not, because it tastes like shit and you've just lied. So they're, they're lying. And when you tell me the War of the Roses, I go, well, they're fighting over roses or they're using roses as their weapons. So why have they called it War of the Roses then? There needs to be a better name for that fucking war. It's quite hard to call wars things when they're just arguing about some stupid shit like who should be on the throne like it's easier to go this is the war of 
Austrian succession in the 18th century because you're literally fighting over, you know, the Austrian throne. When it's just two cousins going at it, you're like, how do we even... What are we going to call this war? It's an absolute nightmare. The wars, Dan, that we know as certain things now, were they known as those wars at the time? That the War of Austrian Succession, is everyone marching off going, I really fancy this War of Austrian Succession? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, do you know what? The, no, we tend to, the names tend to change. In fact, weird, you know that we call the First World War the Great War. In fact, we don't as much anymore. We, people used to call it the Great War. They used to call the Napoleonic Wars the Great War. So it just goes to show that everything is a great war until it's taken over by a greater one, unfortunately. Okay, what about, it just came up in one of my researches that I've done here. What about this? It's something to do with Austria. I'm going to go with the Battle of Karansabis. Karansabis. Hang on, I've got to get my Austrian out. How is it? No, that's South African. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pretend you're skiing. Ah, uh, you want some apple spritzer, yeah? Hey, you want some apple spritzer, yeah? So this is the Battle of Karansabis in 1788. Have you heard of it? I don't think I have heard of it. Okay, that. this is no. good news. Then it means I get to describe it, what it is. And I don't know why I've gone Jamaican and I'm skiing. <laughs> I'll just do it in my normal voice for now, but I can't pronounce it. It's the Battle of Karansabis, which is in 1788 in Austria. Basically, there was loads of these, uh, there was this massive army. And half of them got re went and got really drunk <laughs> and and they didn't share the booze and the fun that they were having. So then loads of in-house fighting went on and 10,000 soldiers died. No. It's either absolutely brilliant or it's absolute bollocks. It wouldn't surprise me, especially Austria. The Austrian Empire was full of units who couldn't even speak the same language. So I think they'd have been as happy to fight each other as, as, as some other enemy. But there was a, a thing, event known as the Battle of Los Angeles in... Early 1942, after Pearl Harbor, probably February 1942. And the, they thought the Japanese were attacking Los Angeles after Pearl Harbor. And so they started firing all their anti-aircraft guns in the air and, and announced a full Japanese. And all these, come, some people got killed because of all the anti-aircraft guns that were then, all these shells were then landing on people in Los Angeles. And everyone was like, the Japanese are coming. They're blasting away into the sky and it was all firing guns into the sky. And it was, there was no one there. No Japanese at all. It was just complete, complete bollocks. It, it was no, it? It's a false alarm. What? They just started in massive, they just kicked off massively. I think there might have been a weather balloon or something. But anyway, they're basically a false alarm. Tom, we've got a question from Paul. And he says... I'm currently working at Thornbury Castle on the refurbishment project. Uh, what's the most interesting slash gruesome Henry VIII fact you can give us, Dan or Tom? I'd start with Dan, I think. Oh, I well, I'm glad you say that, Tom, because I think I've only got one particularly gruesome fact about him, which you probably got as well. So I'm getting ahead of you, but uh, he suffered this disgusting like wound to his leg while he was jousting. Within four, so he goes from being this kind of athletic young man, and within four years, his thirty-two inch waist has gone to fifty-two inches. Uh, and by the time he's died, he's obviously kind of a you know he's just more morbidly obese and and lame because of this terrible, terrible sort of suppurating wound that wouldn't heal. And it's said, it's said that when they put him in his coffin, he burst. He burst. Burst. Well, like 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 pop, like pfft. yeah, pop, pop. That's what I mean, buddy. Pop. Oh, like that elephant. There was this Channel Four program where they did like a circle of life program in Africa where they this elephant had died of natural causes and they moved it and put it in this part of the wilderness. And they set up all these cameras, night vision cameras, and they just filmed this elephant decaying over time and it crept up with all the animals that would go into it and all that lot. And then there was this one night when the hyenas turned up. Oh yeah. And they're starting gnawing at all the bits that are decaying and one of the dirty bastards has gone to gnaw at his battle. And you go, oh, God, please no, please no. And then 
this Henry VIII popping has just reminded me of this. So his rectum slash anus expands like a balloon and he carries on chewing it and then out of nowhere it pops and this hyena shits himself. Excuse the pun. Actually, that was good. That was quite a good pun. And then runs off. And that is now what I'm imagining Henry VIII doing in his coffin, but kind of giving less back to the community than that elephant did. Yeah, at least the elephant's feeding. He's feeding the lads, isn't he? I've done some research, Tom, on Henry VIII. I don't know if you have, because yes, you please. don't take this as seriously as I do. <laughs> but I want to know whether these are true or false in some of the... He was never meant to be king. His He had a brother, did he? Called Arthur. Yeah, but older brother called Arthur. Yeah. Didn't he take his... Wasn't she going to be... Catherine was going to be Arthur's wife? That's right. They were. That, it, Catherine was Arthur's wife. <gasps> and then he and then he died at 15 and he nicked his wife, which is ridiculous. He had a sadistic love of beheadings. However, that was not his favourite way to execute people. His favourite way was called pressing. He'd put the victim under a plank of wood or slab of concrete, I'm guessing, and then would slowly put more and more weight on it. Not his weight. He wouldn't He wouldn't bother, but do you know what I mean? Slowly. And until they popped. What? Um, yeah, so popped is a theme, actually, through here. Um, what else have we got on him? Um, he beheaded a nun, which was out of order, the nun of Kent, and she was the only woman to be beheaded and then have her, her head put on a spike. Up until that time. He, he was often criticised. He it had uh, a 67-year-old woman, Margaret Pohl, one of his no, distant cousins. Uh, he, had her, he had her executed, which felt a bit uh, unnecessary. I mean, I think a 67-year-old woman wasn't a great particular threat to him by that stage. Well, it depends um, what she'd so, done, though, Dan. Well, she was Catholic. Oh, that was it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought she would have tried assassinating him with something. No, no, no. She just didn't. She, Yeah, and he was nervous. He, he basically tried to kill m- most of his um, Plantagenet cousins who secretly had a better claim to the throne than he did. He was a bit tetchy about that. Was he? I mean, she's done well to get to 67 in that era. So I think if I was Henry, even if I felt threatened, I'd be like, realistically, she's not getting far past 70. Let's let natural causes take this one. Is it true that before marrying Anna Cleves, he didn't meet her, but he insisted on sending someone over to paint a picture of her because he didn't want to marry a minger. Yeah. And then they brought the portrait over. She was gorgeous. But then when he actually met her in person, he was like, oh, bloody hell, she's not She's not for me. She, This does not bloody work. And then he was like, I don't want you anymore. I think that is correct, basically, yes. Uh, but, that you know, that wasn't that unusual. Uh, there was a lot of, um, I think it was King Athelstan of England sent his two sisters over to Europe and just sent them to the king of the Franks and said, you know, you sort of, um, you choose the one that you fancy, really. Um, And so I think, yeah, things were a bit superficial back then. It's what we're saying, Joe, that Anne of Cleves, she was an oil painting, but also she was no oil painting. Is that what we're saying? (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, watch out. Watch out. (laughs) You're some some sort of professional wordsmith, aren't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) This is ludicrous from you. Is it true... Um, his last words were monks, monks, monks. Oh yeah, that's what I've always heard. I'm not sure if it's true, but that's what I've always heard. That is the story. Yeah. What could that have been? Why didn't he like monks so much? Well, because he turfed a lot of monks. Because when he when he dissolved, when he got rid of the monasteries, they were full of monks. He turned he turned them out. He gave you know they were given a pension and things, but they were turned out. And it was always said how cruel he was turning all these poor old monks out and making them get real jobs and things. And and I think he uh, was in his head. He was always like, oh god, the bloody monks. They'll all curse me and I'll go to hell when I'm dead. He probably started to freak out about that. Does he know those are his last words? Does he have some sort of countdown clock in his head which goes, Henry, you've got 10 seconds, shoot. 
or were there several other comments he wanted to make after Monk's but unfortunately he just ran out of time if I had some last words I would choose my last words and even if I knew like you kind of know I, I'm guessing you kind of know when the time is nigh does nigh mean near in history talk nigh yeah yeah, the yeah t- so the okay time good is, yeah. the time is nigh and I would choose my words like my wife I, I love you and then I would also have a list of people that I dislike where I'd go I don't like you but I forgive you I don't like you but I forgive you I don't like you but I forgive you and if I know the end is nigh and I've got an hour left I'd say them first and then I'd pretend to be dead for the next 55 minutes but so I could hear all of them Oh, you know, you hear. Oh, thank fuck, he's gone. Do you, do you know what I mean? But I'm, <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretending. I'm like, I'm dead. I'm like, I'm going to die in fifty-five minutes. But like, the famous last lines is a bit of a thing in the history world, and one of my favourites is um, an American general at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. It's a weird name, battle during the American Civil War. He's called uh, John Sedgwick, and he famously went, "They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance." <laughs> <laughs> As he was saying distance, a sniper's bullet smashed into his skull and killed him instantly. (laughs) Do you think that's true or just someone's come up with a really funny way of... uh... Yeah, it's a really funny... No, that is true because that's that's recent enough for us to have a a few different people all telling us the same story. Um, What's the best example of history repeating itself? We've had mad narcissist wannabe dictators calling the press enemy of the people before. We've had mad narcissist wannabe dictators trying to shut down elections, trying to shut down people criticising him. You know, people with pandemics have people saying, oh, God, you know, wearing masks doesn't matter. I'm just going to go out and shake hands with everyone and just get on with it. It's all ridiculous. That happened 100 years ago in the great pandemic of 1918, 1919. A lot of the same stuff happened. So people not listening to scientists, you know, history kind of really repeats itself all all the time. That's what makes us human. We're We're humans. We do the same stuff. We fall in love. We fall out. Fall in love with someone else. Smash our whole lives up. But what if one of the big things about history is, is learning from history, learning from the past, so that we don't make the same mistakes moving forward? Why the fuck do we not listen to it and we keep making the same mistakes moving forward? Well, that is the that's the hundred million dollar question, right? And it's like, why, if we know all this stuff now, written it down, there's all these books you can read about the first, second world war. So why on earth do we allow the same things to happen? And the answer is because sometimes it's just part of our human nature. It's just very difficult to stop. You know if. It's just quite hard to stop someone standing on a stage and promising lots of desperate people those are great solutions if only they vote for him. You know, the fact that it's all bollocks is neither here nor there. It's quite hard to... What stage do you just intervene and arrest that person on that stage going, shut it, talking absolute nonsense. <laughs> so so by the same time, so there's some things are really annoyingly enduring. Like it is really annoying that we still have these problems with the people that rule us and they don't fucking behave themselves and they tell lies all the time and they enrich their mates and they're just a pain in the ass. Having said that, we do actually, we have learned a ton from history and that's why we, we're all talking using the interweb, looking at each other, these lovely cameras, talking on these microphones for a podcast. And that's why we're not all like eating berries, like wandering around in our caves, like chasing the caribou around, right? So human beings have been around for 200,000 years and in the course of that, we have, we have learned things. We, we put a little couple of rovers on Mars, like we, we do amazing things. Most people now in the world expect to die of old age in their beds. You know, that's an amazing thing. We're not, we're not going to get bludgeoned to death by your... You know, someone who's sort of passing by and having a little dispute over food or whatever, or women or whatever. So we have built this amazing society, as far as we know it, the most complex society that has ever existed on any planet ever, apart from Alderaan. So, so we have learned, we've built on the success of previous generations, but some things just difficult to sort. 
And they're often to do with us because we're just emotional weirdos who often we kind of want people to lie to us and we want we want to believe in things and we get upset, we get crazy, we want to do... What we should do is not have... We should, we should have leaders. Leaders are ridiculous. We should have a committee that sorts everything out in a really boring way and just grinds it out. But no, we want people standing on stage with flags and music and voting and promises to change everything. It's like we, you know, we're humans. <laughs> We've had, uh, Dan, a number of questions about the Romans. This seems to be one of the most popular topics amongst our listeners. The first of these questions is a apparently straightforward one from Theo. How long did it actually take to build Rome? So I think the the answer is actually less about the city itself because, and more about the empire because that you know it's a Rome. The Roman Empire stretched from briefly down to the Persian Gulf all the way to Scotland. And so I think people in the Victorian, like in the old days, used to go, oh, Rome, oh, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, what an amazing achievement that was. So the answer is basically the Rome starts about 750 BC, 750 years before uh, Jesus was born. And then it sort of messes about as a little city-state fighting all the other Italians. And then it kicks off and becomes a kind of European global superpower around 100, 200 BC. And then it lasts until... Barbarians conquer the Western Empire in 400, 450, 500 AD. So that's your span. And then the Eastern Roman Empire lasts until the 1400, 1450. So, you know, lasts a long time. You have an absolute plethora of knowledge and it's it's really enjoyable. However, (laughs) however, here we go. If history is meant to be factual or scientific or based on knowledge that's been passed down, why do you use the term BC? Are you telling me that Christ was real? Yeah, I think it, the BC is a big one within history. See, Joe, you, you're, you're hitting all the major hot topics within history at the moment. So a lot of what we what people often say now is BCE before the Christian era, and then CE in the Christian era. Because we realistically, we're not going to invent another calendar, right? We're not we're not going to go all crazy and be like, let's just date it from the the first pyramid being built. But North Korea have created their own calendar. Yeah. And it is the year, Tom, do you remember this from the documentary club we did? What was it? 109. Yeah, when did they start it? When did they start it from, Joe? It was. They started from the birth date of Kim Il-sun. Yeah, the first, the founding. So they're, they're in the year 109, apparently. Yeah, so you, prob- you could yeah, restart born the calendar. 1910 or something. Yeah, you could. Oh. No, you could restart the calendar. The French uh, revolutionary that they tried to start the calendar in the French Revolution. I mean, restarting the calendar kind of, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Well, it just makes it, as, as, a, as, an, as an atheist myself... I agree. I'm, I'm an atheist as well, and I, find, I do find it very weird. I agree. So the French, in French Revolution, they called it the year one of liberty, 1789. Year one of liberty. And then year two, year three. And they say it in American accent. It's, <laughs> they did not say it in American accent. No, they didn't. <laughs> I'm talking, obviously, about when uh, Thomas Jefferson was the ambassador over there. But uh, no, yeah, so they had a, they went for it, mate. They went for it. And I kind of think that's kind of cool that they went for it. But yeah, so it's a tricky one. I, I No, I completely agree with that. No, we, we think Jesus, they think Jesus lived. But, you know, where, where everyone disagrees is that he was not, he didn't have magical powers and he was the son of God. That's the old, that's the, that's the rub. Big topics today, Joe. Big topics. And here's, here's another one. This is a question from Steve Boyle. And he asks, who are your three favourite Roman emperors? It's the kind of chats that us history geeks have down the pub. It's great. You know, who are your three favourite Roman emperors? And, and no one judges you. It's a safe space. No one will judge you. You see, Joe is looking perturbed here. I would have to say, I mean, there's the classic period of the Roman emperors. You, you're kind of Hadrian's, your tra- Trajan is this like out and out mentalist warrior who expands their own empire probably to its greatest extent. Your Hadrian and your Antoninus Pius are kind of 
Well, Hadrian was pretty violent, but the idea was that you, you kind of, they're a bit more, Antonius Pius particularly a bit more peaceful, kind of just running the empire at its peak, totally just knocking along. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, everyone knows from Gladiator, was, was hard to beat as an emperor. I've got a little sneaking respect for Heraclius, who's much later on. He actually gets, he lost lots of provinces of the Roman Empire to the force of Islam when they burst out of the desert of what is now Saudi Arabia. But he was a great emperor because he saved, he saved the emperor from destruction against the Persians. Amazing stuff. You know, one Roman emperor was um, caught by the Persians in battle. He's kept as a slave. And then when he died, he was stuffed and used a footstool. So Nero, am I right in thinking that Nero poisoned his stepbrother, killed his mum, and then did he chop his wife's head off and then give it to his girlfriend? I think those are true. Uh, although they're certainly what the sources say. The source is not very friendly towards Nero, but they, he he didn't. I think he didn't just poison his brother, his uh, stepbrother. I think he might have done even worse things to him. But uh, yeah, so he was wrong, and he tried to kill his mum several times. Once in a collapsing boat. What about Vitellius? He was he was also up there with some of the best. Yeah, there were the year with the four emperors: Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. I love his great names. But uh, yeah, Vitellius was. I mean, he only ruled for about a few weeks, mate. To be honest, so um, why he didn't get much chance to? Because he was knocked off by uh, by Vespasian. Basically, after Nero, the empire kind of fell into a period of civil war. And so Vitellius was emperor for a few, I think it was a few months, actually, I'm being, I'm, I'm being mean to him. But he, uh, he didn't last. Because once you start killing emperors and taking the throne, you know, it's open season. So one of these tough generals, Vespasian, just marched on Rome and beat Vitellius and, and had him executed. So I, I sort of listen to these stories of these Roman emperors, and I find myself wondering what sort of Roman emperor you would be. Alagabalus, is that right, Dan? Alagabalus, Alagabalus? Alagabalus, oh yeah, Alagabalus, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Tom, how could you not get the pronunciation right? Uh, Alagabalus is um, obviously one of the, pretty much the worst emperor there ever was, probably. But Tiberius, who was the second emperor, he used to, his little thing to get off on was he'd swim around in his swimming pool in Caprian. Sons of noble houses would swim underneath the water and nibble on his genitals as he swam. What? Jesus Christ, this lot mm. used to, do, I tell you what, history is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> right, enough about the Romans, because uh, we've got to get some ads in, of course, and also another little historical fact that I found, and it's modern history. This is the, the tale of Fat Finger, the Fat Finger trade, and it's modern history because it was in 2005, and we had a Japanese trader who cost his company that he worked for £190 million. Pound. What? Yep. And that is because he sold 610,000 shares of the company for one yen <laughs> instead of one share for 610,000 yen. So uh, he balls that one up pretty big. Here are some ads. So those were the ads. Uh, Joe, you've got a question, I believe. One of my favourite things to talk about is um, not that. It's uh, museums and the fact that they've got all this historical shit in it and it doesn't belong to them or does belong to them or who it does and who it doesn't belong to. And was it stolen? Was it gifted? Was it? Did it just appear? What's the crack with museum artefacts? Is it loot? Has it been looted? Or A lot of it's loot. Uh, a lot of it's captured on the battlefield, stolen, um, bought at knockdown prices. So the Egypt stuff, 
not technically stolen, but they went there at a time when the Egyptians didn't really give a toss about all these old, massive old stone statues lying around. And Europeans just turn up and be like, I'll give you a fiver for that. And they take it. So it's a whole mixture, mate. It's everything on the spectrum from fair and square purchased with a nice proper invoicing process to ripped off a wall during the uh, vicious conquest of Burma or Tibet or when the Brits destroyed the, the finest palace in China, um, the sort of summer palace just outside Beijing, and it was just ripped to pieces for days. They stole everything that could move. They set fire to the rest of it. And they brought back a little Pekingese dog and for Queen Victoria, and she called it Luti. Oh, is this the one she used to keep up her sleeve? No, hang on. Did that was the Pekingese dog... <laughs> Wow. I heard this thing once, the Pekingese dog is the shape it is because the Chinese emperors used to keep it, keep them up their sleeve. Oh, well, that might be right. As yeah, a little, little attack dog. It was like, if you had nothing else left, give me your guns or swords, whatever. All right, and then whoosh, whoosh, out of your sleeve. <laughs> Crikey, that's a good story. Check that one out. <laughs> why, have I, why have I got written the Mountain of Light diamond from Delhi down here? I don't know why I've written that down. Oh, the Kohinoor. Yeah, that was nicked. Yeah, yeah. What was it called? Kohinoor, I think. Part of that's made its way into the old uh, crown jewels, and that has got a brutal history of basically taken from uh, the subcontinent in dodgy circumstances. It was, I think it was after Britain conquered, I think it was the Punjab or something, it was part of the spoils of war that ended up coming back to the UK. Is spoils of war play on, do you think? Is it acceptable? If you, if you win a war, is it play on during that war to just be like, yeah, I'm taking these paintings? Yeah, well, paintings are good. If you go to the Duke of Wellington's house in London, Apsley House, number one London, a lot of those paintings are from the Spanish Royal Collection. He rescued them in a battle. Rescued, rescued. Rescued them, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And then he said, hey, if you ever want them back, let me know. And the Spanish throne was like, oh, yeah, feel free to keep them, mate. <laughs> uh, just uh, whilst we're talking about Egypt and the Egyptians and Tutankhamun is labelled as the most important historical discovery in the history of history and i go why he was a 19 year old mummy with i mean he wasn't a mummy at the time he was a 19 year old and then he became a mummy <laughs> um he was a 19 year old king who was just buried with loads of gold and shit why was that so important well, it's because it was so complete when they found it. It was amazing. You know, the, the idea that you find a Egyptian royal burial in the Valley of the Kings hadn't all been nicked and stripped out. And that, like, they had actually, contrary to what people think, there had been a little tiny bit of tomb robbing there, but they'd left everything good behind. And yeah, just it was the completeness, the collection, all the objects, his underpants are in there. How have uh, they lasted? Well, it's, it's all very, very dry. Very dry down there. I get through, I get through, you know, a pair will last me a year tops. Yeah, yeah but he wasn't wearing them quite as hard as you're wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, your pants get a lot of use. That is true. Whereas these were folded up neatly in his, his royal box, ready for his afterlife, right? Just never put them on. I just can't get my head around why you'd bury all this really expensive and or useful stuff with someone who's dead for the afterlife, which they had no proof of actually existing. It, it just baffles me. Like that tomb apparently had five and a half thousand objects in it. And you're going, why the fuck have you buried a dead man with five and a half thousand objects to do nothing with apart from to discover hundreds of years later? It's astonishing, isn't it? I agree. It's completely astonishing, which is why later in the Egyptian dynasties, they realise this and lots of pharaohs would just go and asset strip their predecessors' tombs. But for whatever reason, possibly because of like a landslide, Tutankhamun's got lost. But also bear in mind, dude, it's one of the smaller tombs. Can you imagine what those other ones were like? There are like multiple chambers. Those other tombs are the bigger... I mean, that's why they got noticed. Like Ramesses and some of those big pharaohs that you've heard of. They would have had palaces, 
palaces in there. The stuff they must have had in those tombs. Unbelievable. What a waste. Well, and the Terracotta Warriors in China, 200, I won't say BC, so I'll just say 2,200 <laughs> years ago, uh, they, were all, they were never designed to be seen. You've seen those Terracotta Warriors in those pits. They were tunnels. They were not meant to be open air. So they, and they were inserted in there, all brightly coloured. No one was ever supposed to see them. This has made me realise that history isn't about learning from the past. No, 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 no. No, it's not. It's not. It's just about filling your time either down the pub or in a van or in a attic with a duvet, just talking bollocks, filling time about different subjects. And it is oh I just I'm just getting really excited. I just want to keep to I just want to keep talking about stuff. Oh, thanks, man. I, especially thanks, man. I want to talk about the worst children's jobs in history. Children's jobs. Oh yeah. my god. Well, there's lots, mate, to be honest. There's uh, there's a there's a mine in uh in North Wales called the Great Orm Head. And it's a Bronze Age mine. There's a very rich seam of copper, I think it is. It was like this sort of, it was like the Saudi Arabia of the day. So copper, in the Bronze Age, you need copper to make bronze. So these bits of this copper have been found all over Europe. They were so exporting. It was like this mega export place. And anyway, these seams of copper were so small, they had to give kids digging them out. So you no. get these little antlers, yeah. And you can, well, I've been, you can go there until today, but like they're so narrow, these little seams. You can imagine these kids with these little antler horns are digging out this copper, little collapses taking place. I mean, it's just grim, man. Uh, and then, um, yeah, kids on board HMS Victory, big Nelson's flagship, you know, carrying gunpowder around just as people were getting blown apart in front of them. You know, <sighs> supersonic splinters of wood screaming through the air, sharp, killing them. I mean, it's brutal, man. I, you know, the main thing for Mr. I get is I feel very lucky to be alive today, to be honest, you know, even with COVID. But, you know, the past was pretty grim, man. We buried half our own kids. And how did you just, just, that's part of everyday life is you have six kids and three of them just die. Straight away, I'm asking, that's, but, and then you'll be glad if one or two of them get past the age of twenty. It's just grim. The thing I like to complain about: a couple of lessons of homeschooling, unbelievable, unbelievably believable. So this is a quiz for you both to see if you can guess what happened on this very day that we're recording on these different years in the past. Uh, can you take a wild stab at 1906? Any guesses? Yeah, 1906. Yeah, probably, no. Uh, no. Whereabouts? Whereabouts? Uh, oh, I'm thinking it's England or America again. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. It was. Uh, Will Keith Kellogg and someone else founded the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company, which oh, they right, then yes. shortened to Kellogg's later on. Right, and apparently they were very religious and they wanted plain food so people wouldn't masturbate. <laughs> I've heard that that basically Kellogg's come around because they want to stop people wanking. Yeah. Because they thought rich food may give everyone the horn. <laughs> I've no idea how this random quiz is getting me these answers, and I like it a lot. 1914. Ugh. American. This is American. It was Charlotte May Pierstorff. Charlotte May Pierstorff. Anyone recognise that name? She was four years old, and she was the first child in the post to be posted 73 miles to her grandparents. For what um, they posted a child. Yeah, it was it was common back then. Okay, nineteen forty-five. No, I think I, is it the Battle of Iwo Jima? Oh, nailed it. That's the first one you've got. Yes, it is yeah, the the U.S. Got. Fifth Fleet launches the invasion of Iwo yeah. Jima versus the I Japanese mean, with thirty thousand U.S. Marines. You didn't want to be there, mate. Didn't want to be in that beach. Oh God, fuck! That was dark then. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to rattle through these. Nineteen sixty-four. The Beatles, the Beatles played How the, the fuck show. do you know that? How do you oh, know yes. that? 
No, yes. that's, no, this is bollocks. Have you got a camera in it? You don't know the actual answer, but the fact that you've got the Beatles is you're getting a gold star. In 19, February 1964, the UK flies half a ton of Beatles wigs to the US. There you go. So Beatlemania is in full effect. Dan, you have been absolutely brilliant. I've really, really enjoyed learning about historical events with someone who knows a lot about historical events and you, Tom obviously. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast in the lead up to this, trying to do a little bit of research behind it all. And I don't know how you find time to make a new episode every day. Well, I guess I do because we're in lockdown. There's plenty of good historians out there. Exactly. Lockdown. (laughs) How much else going on, man? So that was your classic episode. The good news is that there will be a new classic episode on this feed every single Saturday. So, if you enjoyed that, you might well enjoy the episode about estate agents, about midwives, about opera singers, about flight attendants. Basically, there are shed loads for you to get involved in. Dive on in. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Podcast Network.